Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Is Growing All, the podcast all about the common human experience of aging. My name is Sue Passion, and I'm the president and CEO here at the Alliance for Aging Research. Joining us today is Gretchen Wartman, Vice President for Policy and Program at the National Minority Quality Forum. An advocate for more than 30 years, Gretchen has committed her career to advancing health policy and restoring equity. Gretchen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, and thank you, Sue, for inviting me. I'm honored to be here. Terrific. Well, uh, tell us a little bit more about your work with the National Minority Equality Forum. Well, thank you. I have been um, a member of the National Minority Equality Forum's team for um, 20 years, um, which means I probably need to confess that my work has, I've been working in this um, in the health policy environment for 50 years. Uh, 30 of them have been very specifically focused on federal and state policy, but prior to that, I, I spent about 10 years with the federal government uh, and another 10 in, um, in Michigan with the city of Detroit Health Department and with the Greater Detroit Area Health Council. So I, I raised that here because a not only am I old and working on issues associated with growing old, but in that 50 years, I've seen uh, or experienced the discussions that you and I are often having in different forums uh, through any number of different lenses with a particular aspect of the conversation being defined as the challenge, the problem. And in that 50 years, the conversation has not changed significantly, nor have the challenges. We've got more precise data available to us to enable churning of the issue. But moving forward from defining the issue towards resolving the issue is where uh, we're, you and I, in the work we do together and others, are experiencing what could be called a system, systemic hiccup but it's, it says to me that we're getting to the crux of the problem. And if I, I, I guess I'll close this by saying that the National Minority Quality Forum has begun to recognize, as, has many of our, as have many of our partners, that reforming a system uh, that is not designed at its core, in its core programming, to address issues through an equitable lens is an interesting and very busy uh, experience but it will ultimately fail because the, um, the operating system, the values that inform the system are designed to do the exact opposite of what we're asking it to do, which is to not differentiate, not assign differential value uh, to different population cohorts or different therapeutic areas, but to find a way to bring all in and respond to their challenges associated with uh, getting the greatest possible advantage from the science that is available, not just relative to another racial or ethnic group or um, uh, geographic area. And so mm -hmm. that's where NMQF is. And I think that is, I think it's safe to say that's what my thinking has evolved to towards in the last 50 years. It makes it a little more, on some level, it makes it a tad more daunting 
But on another level, it's actually, I don't want to say comforting, but you realize that you were understanding what was happening, that uh, it's not you who doesn't understand how the system works. We do understand how the system works, but what it's doing is not in the best interest of reducing the risk for the patients who are dependent upon it. And as Dr. Puckman said to me, who's the president of NMQF, uh, who are indeed the investors in the system. Mm -hmm. It's our dollars that move it forward. So this next question, I'm sort of wondering if we frame this, um, given everything that you just said, the way that we should have. Um, the question is, what do you think are some of the greatest barriers in health equity that older adults of color currently face? Um, but I'm sort of wondering if it if it almost needs to be broadened to sort of the the structure itself. But please go ahead and, and tell me what your thoughts are. The challenge is that older adults of color experience is they're not significantly different from the uh, disadvantages that older adults of um, backgrounds other than of color. Uh, experience. Uh, and you and I know that uh, those of us who are of color differ from each other in okay. terms of, of uh, language and ethnicity and culture. And um, our sex and gender orientations, our geographic locations uh, are, uh, intersect with uh, race and ethnicity and can further confound the conversation and do further confound the conversation, particularly in a system that over the years has attempted to narrow its responses to a single response for a single particular patient profile. The issue of Alzheimer's disease mm -hmm. and the fact that individuals of color and women of color are at greater risk for being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease than populations that are defined as Caucasian, therefore not of color, uh, who are also not Hispanic. The fact of that, the information that supports that statement is on the website of, or is on the websites of patient advocacy groups who advocate on behalf of patients with Alzheimer's disease. You can go to the NIH website and see the same data, and I'm sure, and the data that we use within the National Minority Equality Forum we we um, have obtained from CMS. Yet attention was not paid to that issue, the differential risk, and the potentially the differential in disease presentation, and efficacy, if you will, of therapeutic uh, interventions throughout the stages of the disease. And that's America. Uh, America has, actually it's global, colorism throughout the globe that assigns lesser value to people with more brown melanin than other melanin is um, ubiquitous. And then that affects one's ability to access often educational resources or financial resources or others. But I'm going, to, I'm going to go back to the sort of the comforting part is when you recognize, well, they are aware uh -huh. that this is occurring. Okay. 
So my angst, you know, we hear lots of conversation uh, regarding distrust of the system as though it's somehow unfounded mm-hmm. or emotional rather than an right. intellectual response. A response to an, a system that assigns lesser value to you, which is abusive to some mm-hmm. degree, is a logical response. Mm-hmm. And the unwillingness, what appears to be the unwillingness of the system to respond to those voices that have been expressing concern for decades, often through the clinical community, patient advocacy community, as it had opportunities to speak, is also not unfounded in certain facts. Mm-hmm. And it, it is not necessarily an issue of whether there's racial or ethnic bias. There is, that, that is a reality globally. But the fact of the matter is the business model mm-hmm. that uh, incentivizes the behavior of researchers, of the federal government, of, of the commercial sector, of states and Medicaid programs, uh, is in conflict with equity. Mm-hmm. And to try to have equity, meaning equity in access to the science, to the creation of new knowledge, so that over time, we have uh, therapeutic options that can survive the rigor of an FDA approval process, regardless of how it is being made manifest at the moment. And when it is then um, viewed through the lens of payers for reasonableness and um, necessity also passes muster. Uh And so all of those, the, the levers that have to be pulled to make sure that the different sectors of interest that keep the system going are advantaged by engaging in a conversation about equity is, I think, the challenge that we're all addressing at this point. And so I'll go back to the Alzheimer's conversation. You and I worked on a particular therapeutic, uh, a particular process at CMS, which is, was a coverage with evidence determination process. Mm-hmm. And there are, I think, great concern was expressed. Yes by CMS, by ICER and others about the lack of diversity in the denominator of that research, which is the case for all research in mm-hmm. the United States with an example that I can speak to if I need. That information was used to hinder access to that therapy for populations that do not are not defined as minority in this country. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, the disparities that have placed perhaps a preventable burden to this disease on populations of color were then weaponized to help the payer, enable the payer world to meet its objective of mitigating its financial risk and justifying it by the lack of access to the creation of the knowledge of which they've been aware for decades. And I'm, I'm going to say Dr. Puckran has um, recently created an annotated bibliography of, um, I think, 3,000 references that he found that have communicated very clearly and sometimes were authored by CMS or what was then HICFA employees 
documenting the lack of access to research and the fact that the majority of beneficiaries who were perhaps surveyed, A, stated that they'd never been asked to participate in research, and also said that if you asked me, I'd probably say yes. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. But, but mm -hmm. the system has to be willing to answer some questions then that it may be uncomfortable asking about the history of abusive research in the United yes. States. And when you elect to not answer a question rather than to answer it honestly, directly, it can tend to reinforce what I would call antipathy towards partnering with those entities in, in advancing their business objectives, which some people like to call distrust. But it is, I'm going to say trust, that you will continue to be who you have always been. Yeah, one thing I want to ask as sort of a follow-up to that, we were, I was in a different discussion yesterday where I, I brought up the question about there, there's so much focus on clinical trials and diversity in clinical trials, but clinical trialists are going to look for people in a disease state based on guidelines for diagnosis and, and treatment, which are also based on white people. And people of color oftentimes develop these conditions at earlier ages because of racism and other disparities or social determinants, I should say. And so their age of disease onset is earlier in many cases in issues like heart failure, hypertension, diabetes. So the, the age at which physicians are taught to look for conditions like heart valve disease or Alzheimer's that are often those follow-on conditions happening later in life may be happening more in midlife in people of color, but they're not looked for. So they're not in the guidelines necessarily of, for diagnosis. And then subsequently, it's not who folks are going to look for for clinical trial recruitment. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering about your thoughts of earlier, even in the process, rather than, you know, research is just even identifying populations, disease populations, that it's baked in there as well. And how mm -hmm. does that kind of contribute to the whole problem later on with clinical trial recruitment? Uh, what you have outlined is what I'll call the sort of the, that compound complex systems loop that has these multiple inflection points that need to be identified and addressed. By definition, that means that one needs to get upstream in terms of policies, guidelines, uh, graduate medical education to begin that process of bringing historically marginalized populations into the center of a, the bell in a way that they cannot be ignored. It is not an easy thing to do, but it's something that must be done for a second reason or another reason, which is that the demographics of the United States are changing. Mm -hmm. And so populations that could fairly easily be situated outside the center of the bell which was, and in most of our lives, has been defined as the general population. And mm -hmm. then uh, African-Americans, Hispanics, Asian Pacific Islanders, others, this is a gross uh, generalization, were interestingly 
and concerningly defined as subpopulations mm -hmm. of that general population, which was predominantly Caucasian non-Hispanic and earlier in this, I would say the last century, male. And so the um, finding a sort of linear pathway, mm -hmm. a first step towards correcting this issue is an impossibility. And uh, I was just in a meeting where there was a, just this litany of all the challenges associated with bringing, um, creating equitable access for populations who are historically marginalized. And, you know, with blinders on and through any particular therapeutic lens, the, the, the uh, sort of the litany of challenges is similar. The question becomes, well, what do you do first? And I think, you know, there isn't, what, what you do first, I suppose, is bring an equitable framework construct to the, to the opportunity that's in front of you at the moment, which also means that we need to have partners with different types of stakeholders. Right. At, who recognize that there is a business advantage. Right. Yes. To bringing equity into mm -hmm. their deliberations, into the development of their products or whatever. The um, 2020 um, Census Bureau population projections really projected, if I'm recalling accurately, a essentially a collective majority of Americans by, I think, 2060 that is comprised of these populations that have historically been defined as minority right. or have always yeah. been outside of the bell. Okay. Mm -hmm. The bell keeps getting smaller and smaller. For the, um, I would say, business interests, we're reaching who are essential to moving this forward. Ignoring that fact, ignoring the population shift is unwise. Yes. <laughs> and so I think we have an opportunity here because the business, the financial risk mitigation will always be a priority for business interests, but it's difficult to mitigate one's financial risk when one's products can, given the data that are available to us, given the information that is currently available, uh, often are de demonstrably less effective in the populations uh, that have been um, or who have been excluded from the denominator of the site. So I don't know where I ended up in that answer. Sue, I, <laughs> I thought it was a great answer. And I do think that the business case is is really important because I do think that the companies that are not on the payer end of business, but on the healthcare product end uh, to try to improve healthcare, uh, are going to start leveling out, right? In, in terms of their sales, if they are just solely focused on wealthier whites um, mm -hmm. and aren't looking uh, at the changing trajectory of the population. I think that's absolutely right. And Dr. Puckran and I were just at the Association of Black Cardiologists meeting, mm -hmm. and we talked about this with the heart valve manufacturers. And they're, I, I think they are increasingly, you know, aware that their business is, is flattening over time because of the mm -hmm. coverage with evidence development model at, in Medicare, um, that's who that model caters to. Mm -hmm. And you can only get so far, it's been 10 years, so it's been pretty profitable, 
over 10 years, but you do hit a wall eventually. And uh, I, I, I do think they're going to have to take a look at it. And if that's what it takes, it's not necessarily the motivation is not to do the right thing uh, necessarily, but just, you know, to kind of keep the business going, so be it. But uh, I, I think it's an important point to be made and, and one that you're either going to be on uh, on the train or not. And, uh, and it also happens to be the right thing to do. What's of particular interest to me also, only as it uh, affects only those, social, those aspects, what I'll call sort of the, um, I'm going to blank on the word, but the magnitude of that, the challenge in, within that particular social determinant category only as it compromises access to care, particularly within the patient-physician uh, dyad or the uh, pharmacy dyad. There's a convenient shorthand that's being used that enables folks to believe that some people have social determinants of health and others do not. It's being misused in a way that's problematic. Everyone has social determinants of health, but not everyone. Not a parent, right. Yes. <laughs> well, they I don't know. want to accept well, it that way. Some people have po positive ones and some people have negative yes, ones. So because they, they, they increase one's access, in theory, mm -hmm. to um, the uh, benefits mm -hmm. of the system. We also tend to speak as, it, we then tend to group communities of color, African-American, non-Hispanic, um, Hispanics of African descent, somehow in that social negative social determinants. I'm very interested in assuring that social determinants of health are collected on all patients who present okay. all and collected in such a way and entered into uh, electronic health records in such a way that we can conduct the kinds of intersectional analyses we need to, to get a sense of how the system is behaving for those who may not technically have a financial challenge, but present like those who are assumed to have a financial challenge. Mm -hmm. How are they, how, are, how is care being prescribed for them? What are they encountering mm -hmm. uh, uh, as they move through the healthcare delivery system? That will give us a sense of where perhaps guidelines or um, payment policies or um, need to be shored up, if you will, to assure that all populations, and I mean all populations, because Caucasian populations have social determinants of health that challenge Caucasian medicine, their access to the system, and they're not all in rural areas. So we use these codes, you know, are you in a rural area right. or are you in an urban area? Are you Right. Yeah. And I would submit that absent insurance, the mid American middle class is in one unfortunate diagnosis away from financial ruin. And so the language that we use and the messages that we use need to, need to enable us to bring others into this conversation mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. health equity and assuring that the investments that they have made protect their families and their children moving forward. Well, now you're getting into 
political conversation. (laughs) So without getting into it, no, I know, I I think that's what you, right? Slightly, it's sort of the the groups that are forgotten because they are not the groups that vote vote for you uh, necessarily. And um, and it is true. I I agree because it creates a divisiveness or a feeling of being forgotten. And I appreciate the fact that the National Minority Equality Forum is interested in looking at all uh, because the ones groups that you forget, communities that you forget, will find a refuge somewhere. And mm-hmm. if we're trying to create policy that that is good um, for everyone, you can't can't forget certain groups just because they don't vote your way. That, that, that is correct. Dr. Puckett ran some numbers 15 years ago. What the, um, then, the then leadership of the CBC Health Brain Trust was able to do was to take that information to a hearing and communicate to her peers that your constituents, a significant percentage of your constituents are disadvantaged by policies that you vote for. And it is to your political advantage to be able to communicate to them that you're working on their behalf. It is, it's, it's, I mean, this is a um, polarized society. Uh And I understand that. I don't want to sound too um, naive. And so unfortunately, some assume that if it is good for them, it must by definition be harmful to me because it's somehow taking from me something that I feel I have worked for and earned and, uh, and of which they are not deserving. Right. I, I do believe that it is possible to rethink the American Health Services research delivery and financing system in a way that assigns value to everyone. I don't know what that costs. If uh-huh. we use the business models we currently have, we won't make it. Right. Okay. It will be too expensive and it will stop conversation in its tracks. But that's why I say at NMQF, sort of our um, operating, we have a foot on either side of the line. Uh-huh. We're operating within the pragmatic reality of the, of the opportunity we have at the moment to, to influence that issue, but also asking others to join with us to reimagine health services research delivery and financing going forward mm-hmm. and making sure that there are data to support that um, and then making sure that there are opportunities to for all to use those data to help themselves their constituencies constituencies those who design graduate medical education to realign their thinking with a truly population health through truly population health lens. Now this sounds, maybe it sounds a bit trite, but I do believe that absent that the initiation of that process now, long after you and I are both gone, uh-huh. uh, society will continue to be hurt uh, by a failure to do so because the, the uh, business sectors upon whom, upon which we all rely are going to struggle, as you said, they're not only going to, they're not going to flatten, a lot of them are going to flatline. And what we know is flatlining in the United States flatlines overseas as well. This is not just an American issue. So I don't have the answer other than 
we must begin to have those reimagining conversations. And as part of that, assuring that that's, that, that bell uh-huh. encompasses all. There will always be timing challenges associated with bringing certain, I would say maybe therapeutic responses to market, but not operating with intention and defining it as somehow a societal do the right thing, but not a business do the right thing. Well, I believe cause it to uh, any efforts to fail. So you're talking about conversations and you have uh, NMQF has its upcoming summit on health disparities and spring health brain trust, which I think is one of the best conversations uh, happening in Washington. It happens each year. Tell us a little bit about that and what you all attempt to accomplish through that dialogue. Well, um, what we attempt to accomplish is to expand an understanding of the issue that attends improvements in healthcare outcomes for marginalized populations. Now, let me say this. The name of our organization is the National Minority Quality Forum to call attention to the fact, and Gary might not say this, but I'll say it, that, and at the time he selected that name, the system was not paying attention to populations that were defined as minority, which I'm gonna say once again, so the mental picture of African-American comes to mind, but there are other populations that fall within that category. Right. And several years ago, uh, Dr. Puckran noted that we had spent maybe our first five or 10 years having sessions where we simply ran through the list of all the challenges, the diseases and the problems with that disease, percentage differences between African-American, non-Hispanic, and Caucasian, non-Hispanic, Asian, and um, Native American, those kinds of conversations, which don't need to stop, but at some point, right. we have to start having the conversation about the solutions. Mm-hmm. And so I would say what, what I think we're growing into, I will say, with the stakeholders in the National Minority Equality Forum is that comfort level, that support for beginning to articulate solutions. And our, of course, I'm going blank on the, t- on the theme of the summit, but it, uh, it, it speaks to um, improving care outcomes for the most vulnerable. Now, one can define most vulnerable in one's way. I define it as populations who are not valued in research, in delivery, in finance. You and I have spoken to and spoken about the value assessment processes that are underway in this country. Those value assessments, by definition, assign differential value to different population cohorts. Mm-hmm. They include, but they're not limited to, ICER. It's the, I won't say it's the gorilla in the room, but it's the most visible mm-hmm. uh, value assessment process in the room. But value assessment occurs uh, throughout the um, public and commercial uh, insurance industry and the um, immunization practices committee that is managed by CDC. 
their deliberations are value assessment deliberations. It's the reasonableness and the uh, utility, not safety and efficacy. The work that you and I have done and are continuing to do on uh, coverage with evidence development uh, through CMS, that process is a value assessment process. Now, the tools that they use to determine whether they're going to uh, assign value to um, therapies that, are, that they're including in, a, in the coverage with evidence development process mimic those that are used by FDA, but they're looking for something different. They're, and so they can, they're building on that. This is my take on it. I mean, tell me if you, you take it differently. The, um, the American general population needs to be aware that these kinds of value assessments occur. We've been all raised to think that FDA was the decision. Now, I'm not speaking to what's happening recently in our society. This is something that we've become aware of at uh, the National Minority Quality Forum for decades. The fact that FDA approved something and for the physician community, for the clinical community, that was an interesting piece of information, but did not assure right. placement and the guidelines, the treatment guidelines. Because they then undertake, to some degree, an assessment of the value to their work of referencing that particular therapy and how they're going to communicate to clinicians when and where and for whom it should be used. No, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, the CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, argues that they do uh, adhere to a different uh, statutory standard with reasonableness and if something is necessary. reasonably necessary, reasonably necessary. Right. Right, right, versus uh, uh, safe and efficacious, which is what the FDA stands for. Um, the, the FDA standard is part of that definition, uh, but the rest of it is is pretty broad, and it's left up to interpretation on the part of the payer, which is mm -hmm. uh, CMS, and, and Medicare falls under that. And so I do think that physicians, patients, uh, the whole community is left uh, to, to not be sure anymore once the FDA approves something, whether or not it'll be covered by Medicare. And some of that has occurred as the population has aged. Uh, we just have a big number of folks that are entering into the Medicare program every year. And we really haven't faced that as a country. We haven't said we've had this huge population shift. What do we do about it? It's all been, how do we slash and burn? There are too many people in this program now. And so uh, coverage with evidence development is one of the responses to that. And that's been unfortunate. Uh, the movement of the baby boomer call has been monitored by our society, I think, since it was identified. So that was sometime in the, probably the 50s, because there were some of us who were sort of post-World War II babies. And then it, it, it moved into, I think, uh, the uh, early 60s. I get that confused. Mm -hmm. But the ability, the awareness of the boomer cohort as a significant societal influencer has been with us the whole time. The way marketing changed once we moved into our uh, sort of revenue generation and spending years, the way commercials changed because the, the culture of those of us who 
matured in the um, late 60s and early 70s, suddenly it was uh, on TV. And that was back when we still only had three channels, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and TV stopped. Right. Um, at night. I, that I was, that I, I remember. And so the force of us, the, the economic force of us has always been recognized. I find it very interesting that, and I think it's in spite of Claude Pepper's commission, health services, research, delivery, and finance has, did not factor that in. Uh-huh. And so it, 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 uh, in terms of being proactive, maybe, in identifying therapeutic responses or circling up the wagons to protect themselves for the, the years when we would perhaps not be contributing as much as we did, uh-huh. still be here because the health services research living financing system works. She lived longer and you often live longer. And then you begin to develop um, certain health challenges that didn't develop when people tended to die between 35 and 40. I'm confident if we go through the, back to, through the literature and look at that, we will see that there were those who were writing about that. Uh-huh. The question is, why did it, was it not in, embraced by the business model? You've got um, Zeke Emanuel. Well, I'm going to always bring it up because I heard, at, I was at the National Press Club a number of years ago before everybody had to go home. Um, and when he announced that you know his father had been ill and his father was beginning to was denying further care, and so then then Dr. Emanuel made his statement there. I don't know if it was for the first time that after age X, we okay. should all right reject any further health intervention and leave the stage. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I I remember sitting there. First of all, I was I was so stunned. You know, and, and I was, uh, I don't think anyone responded to him because it was just a stunning statement uh-huh. from a physician. It was a business statement that he was making. I don't accept that. And I definitely don't accept those kinds of statements from those who will almost always, as you've said in other uh, environments, be able to purchase that they need or ha- that which they need or have access to it by virtue of their position in society. It's such a callous and um, disturbing statement. Uh, I don't know Dr. Emanuel. I'm assuming he won't call me and ask me how dare I say this, but it's it's, it's a public. Uh-huh. Because it also then will serve to undermine the creation of additional knowledge associated with those who live longer uh-huh. with a condition that informs the creation of new therapeutic options and then hopefully cures. So devaluing older adults as, as a critical component of research is a stunning thought process from someone, I think, who's not only a practicing physician, but an academician. I was just going to say, I'm probably uh, amply self-insured. Um <laughs> I, I did. I, I was at a meeting with him. Uh, I think it was uh, with HL, HLC, the Health Leadership Council. One year I was invited as a, as a guest and I, we ended up in a, in a small group together. And he talked about, I think he worked as an oncologist uh, for a long time, still, still may. Um, and he spoke about how he often talked to his patients about the price of therapies as part of the decision-making process. And would they, 
you know, want to have the therapy if they knew how much it cost. And I was thinking about the analogy of, you know, when we all, everybody goes to the airport, the common experience of going to the airport and you're hungry for lunch and they have tuna sandwiches at the airport and the tuna sandwich at the airport is like $17, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the same tuna sandwich that you get at a local corner deli or certainly not what you get at your house, but you're a captive audience. And so you pay $17 for the tuna sandwich. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not as though patients are coming from the perspective of, oh, I want the Cadillac, you know, treatment, uh, knowing that it's going to cost the health system X amount of money. You're just in the pickle that you're in at the time, whether it's cancer or heart disease or what, or Alzheimer's or whatever it is you have, and you just want help. And you're not the one that chooses the price tag in the hospital setting or in the doctor's office. And it was an interesting dialogue uh, because there was that perception of patients are sitting at the airport saying, I'll take a tuna sandwich and a chicken salad sandwich and a you know, fruit cup to, to boot, as though we are choosing these things because we just have very rich taste. And his rationale for that was, what? Because I have a cancer diagnosis. In his wisdom, he thinks that I need to, in that moment, assign a value to my life and to perhaps the loss of it or the delay versus the delay of what I may be thinking of as an inevitability in, in terms of death associated with this diagnosis because of what the treatment costs. Mm -hmm. And it's just not, um, and I, I think what uh, Dr. Emmanuel is doing is in his way, shining a light for the American population who may hear his remarks and understand the decision-making processes that are going on, ongoing all the time, regardless of whether it's a cancer diagnosis or a hypertension diagnosis or a heart disease diagnosis, uh, this is part of the thought process. Mm -hmm. uh, and absent, um, I would say, community and voter engagement to understand how this will affect care that's available for them and then how they can influence it. In my view, that not understanding how the system works is true health illiteracy. That's, it is so true. And it is possible to educate the American general public, all of us, regarding how the system thinks, how it works in language and concepts they can understand. I think the tuna, sand the tuna sandwich analogy is perfect. Uh, and, and, and indeed, you didn't choose to be hungry. You're, you're at the airport, you spend your life at the airport and the food for many, it's not a choice. It is unaffordable. Mm -hmm. It is unaffordable. And that's where we are with healthcare at this point. People aren't making choices about necessities versus non-necessities in life. They're making choices across necessities. Those of us who have an opportunity to 
influence the behavior in the system in such a way that it mitigates some of that burden right. for patients, families, and communities, I ask to uh, take the opportunity to do so. Where can people find tools or resources to amplify NMQF's mission? Our website address is www.nmqf.org. It is undergoing a major retooling, so, but I think that link still works. Uh, if not, uh, your listeners can contact me at, um, I'll say, G. Wartman, G-W-A-R-T-M-A-N, at nmqf.org, and I'll do the best I can to get you to the resources you need. Perfect. Thank you. Questions you may have. Thank you. Now, Thank we you. have... Two closing questions I'm going to ask, uh, which we like to ask all our guests. First, when you were a kid, what did you imagine growing older would be like? I, I can honestly say I didn't. I probably thought it meant that I could stay up later. And uh, I was generally reading books because we were a reading family. I, 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 I can honestly say I didn't expect to encounter the... Um, what I'll call callous disregard, mm-hmm. and 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 an and an action taken in that context of callous disregard that I'm encountering. But maybe I wasn't listening. I do recall I have a sister who's two and a half years older, which I remind her of constantly. Uh, and we were having an argument in the in our teens about something that was absolutely existential. I don't know a book or whatever. And my father's stopping us and saying, listen, you two need to be nice to each other and take so that you can take care of each other when you get older. And I remember thinking, well, and here we are. Yeah. And so I'm I'm, um, reminded of that as the two of us get older together and our our, our functioning, our ability to function in certain environments uh, has its, has its uh, differentials. But I think my father tried to tell me something in my teens that I just wasn't seeing. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we survived it. So that's question one. That's question two. Okay. Question two is what do you enjoy most about growing older now? Ooh, I think what I enjoy is the... Um, it's not a freedom, but the relief from losing the burden of feeling the need to please everyone, mm-hmm. uh, to be liked, because it's so terribly important when you're younger to be liked. Yeah. Okay. And then once you realize that no matter what you do, some people are just not going to like you. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it's, if you allow that, to too great a degree, and it has been that way in my life, to constrain your thinking about where you can go and what you can do. Uh, what I'm finding at this stage uh, is that it is a non-issue, other than the employer that uh, who, who's <laughs> important to me. Okay, yes, my employer. Okay, but I'm I'm speaking in every aspect of life. Uh, 
being comfortable with you, who you are. And uh, I heard older people say this and I had no idea what they were talking about. And you liking you and what you're doing is the most important thing. That is so true. Amen. I love it. I don't think anyone has said that so far and it is so true. And uh, I am just personally starting to get that because it's tiring to worry about (laughs) other people all the time. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Gretchen. I love this conversation. I know we totally went off script and did not follow directions, which is my usual way. Uh, And I think it's often your usual way too. So I think this went the way it was supposed to go. (laughs) Okay, but thank you so much for your patience with me. Thank you. Thank you, Gretchen.